Today's reading is from the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis 32, verses 22 through 31. Jacob wrestles at Peniel. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, this morning I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A few months ago, uh, I think it was Chris Thompson who said to me, you should share more of your story and your sermons. People don't exactly know, you know, what your, your history with church is, and you should talk about that more. And, and so we just finished our core values sermon series, and I have this one Sunday before I head out on vacation, and, and then this text came up in the lectionary, so I thought, okay, here's the, here's the Sunday morning. And, um, you know, I also get to get on a plane and fly away tonight, so... <laughs> A little vulnerability won't kill me. <laughs> so I'm going to share a little bit about my story this morning, and I don't usually make um, my sermons, try not to make it quite, them quite a bit about me, uh, but here's something I wrote a couple years ago about my formative spiritual experiences as a child. I don't know if it's an actual memory or a memory of a memory. I am in my childhood backyard, Auntie Vi is at the front of the group asking who wants to ask Jesus into their heart. And today, at all of three and a half years old, I loved to count the halves. I do. I raise my hand, I pray a prayer, and in my memory, something changes. I'm happy. I'm flooded with peace. My parents are thrilled. We call grandpas and grandmas and aunts and uncles. I tell our friends I accepted Jesus into my heart. The memory grows in my mind over time. I remember feeling different and that something changed. I say this through college. That was the moment. Somewhere in the spring of 1975, my eternal destiny shifted for real. 
I had to wait five more years before being allowed to take communion just to make sure I really understood. My dad quizzed me on my understanding as we walked into the side door of the church. What does the bread and juice mean? That Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That I accepted him into my heart. My answers passed the test. When the matzo bread came around, I got to take a piece. I held it quietly, imbuing it with as much contrition as I could for my sins. For that forbidden banana lollipop I had eaten without permission that tasted terrible and proved my sinful nature. Please forgive me, Jesus. Had I held my cracker long enough to prove I was serious about this? Out of the corner of my eye, the adults slowly placed the crackers in their mouths. I waited for another moment and did the same. Flour, salt, water. This is my body, broken for you. And now the juice in those tiny glass cups. I'm sorry that I was mean to my sister. I'm sorry that I'm rebellious. I'm sorry that my heart is black with sin. Make me clean. I drink the juice and wonder if I'm allowed to sip down that final drop of Welch's nectar left. (laughs) Back into the round hole in the pew in front of me, along with the rest of the sinner's cups. This is my blood shed for you. I'm 10, and it's baptism day. I've been to classes with old and kindly Pastor Brown, whose wife was my very scary piano teacher. I was aware of the significance of this act of public confession of faith. God has no grandchildren, they say. I have to make this decision for myself, and I have. In the backyard, now seven years ago, it's time to make it public. In the attic of the church, there is a room filled with robes and forgotten decorations. I'm there without my parents, the youngest by far, getting dressed by the women of the church. We wait in line to step into the baptistry, an open space high above the pulpit. The water heater is broken that day. It must be especially meaningful if the water is freezing. My devotion will not be questioned. I answer the question, yes, Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. Bad knees, lean back into Pastor Brown's arm, come up made new, Grab that warm towel as fast as possible, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm 13 and at a junior high winter camp in Lake Tahoe, 10 years past the Backyard Bible Club, and it's clear that my transformation is incomplete. I tease and torture my sister. I yell at my mother. I even said the F word behind her back at church. (laughs) It's time for a reboot. A rededication. Our youth leader goes through a little booklet with me. Who is on the throne of my life? Is it God or is it me? I have to admit, it's me. I pray the prayer in the back of the booklet. I shed a few tears. I feel cleansed and born again, again. I'm 20 and a sophomore at a Christian university. I'm generally uninterested in my chosen major of psychology, and during our annual mission conference, I acknowledge what I've always known, that if you really love God, you are a missionary. I really love God. I also really love Europe. Adding those two together, I feel a rush of inspiration and calling. I am meant to be a missionary to Europe. Tears flow down my cheeks in gratitude for the clarity of this call. My degree shifts to intercultural studies, I set my face toward Europe. 
personally raise enough money from friends and family to support me there and move to Budapest in the early 1990s as the Eastern European countries are opening. I have done the biggest thing I know to do for God. So this is my story. My life was completely ensconced in conservative evangelicalism for in the 1970s and 80s for the first 20 some years of my life. <clears throat> I didn't really have any close friends who didn't profess to be Christians. I could probably count the amount of Democrats I knew on one hand. <laughs> this was my faith tradition. This was my story. So I wonder, what is yours? Maybe you don't have a faith tradition. Maybe you had a healthy and joyful faith tradition. Maybe you had a horrific experience in faith communities. But most of us, especially if we're in this room, are in some relationship to a faith tradition to church. The percentage of people in America that identify as Christian is about 60%. And so I think this is our dominant cultural experience, even if we're outside of what would, we don't classify ourselves as a Christian, we're in relationship to this kind of experience. I remember one time hearing a theologian that I greatly respect saying he didn't want to come to church to be psychologized. He wanted to come and he wanted to hear the gospel. And that always haunts me because I tend to be very um, influenced by psychology and by my own journey of healing and growth. And I see what he's saying, but I also think we don't talk enough about our faith stories when we come to church. Because none of you walked in there with, as a blank slate when it come in, <clears throat> walked into here as a blank slate. All of us come with the stories that we've experienced, with expectations that we have about our faith and about religion. So religion is a complexity in which I think all of us are navigating three things. First of all, we're navigating our projections about faith. How people, I learned this very quickly when I became a pastor and I was in seminary. When I would tell people what I did, I would see, I would watch the look on their face. And sometimes, literally, it was like a shutting down and walking the other direction, which I could only assume they had had a bad experience with faith or were in some way afraid that I was going to try to convert them. Some people would look really interested and say, oh, I love my religious studies class, you know, in, in college, and they'd want to talk about that. I was learned very quickly that whatever I was reading on their face had nothing to do with me that actually as a, as a pastor, as someone connected to institutional religion, I was simply a screen for their projections about whatever they thought religion was. So there's our projections about faith, about God. Secondly, there's the actual events. And these, like projections, can be both positive and negative. What tradition we inherited, what happened to us in that tradition. Maybe the story I heard this week, the story of a grandmother who took her granddaughter to church and the granddaughter loved to sit with her grandmother in church and sing the hymns and loved to hear the Bible stories from her grandmother. From that to a few of my dear friends who suffered at the hands of uh, Catholic priests as altar boys in their young years. 
There are actual historical things as we were reading in this story about Don Miller that happened in the history of the church. Some beautiful things, like the faith that, that inspired the civil rights movement, and some horribly awful things, like the faith that drove the slaughter through the Crusades. Things happened that were right and wrong, good and evil. What is what? Where does history begin and my projection end? It's hard to necessarily know all the time. But there are things that happened, and there is my projections on faith. And then there's this third element, and I'm just going to call that element God. <laughs> this something bigger, something stronger than us, something outside of both our projections and even maybe the actual events, something we're trying to understand, something that it defies our expectations and our projections that's not confined to historical realities, something that many of us have experienced in moments and yet then is hidden from us for years. Religion is so complex. And when you add our family systems, when you add our nation's fusion of politics and religion, becomes a big knotted ball of yarn, which reminds me of this knitting project that I've been working on for a long time, <laughs> maybe 10 years. Um, it's this yarn. I, I tend to fall in love with yarn <laughs> and then have a hard time finishing <laughs> the knitting project. But, but this, uh, this gray yarn you can't see from there is a, a stainless steel yarn wrapped with silk threads. It's absolutely beautiful, and it's mixed with this wool yarn, and um, I've been slowly working my way through this, and then about three years ago, we got a puppy who found the bag and who, who tore it apart and tore all of my work out, and, and it's just been sitting in this bag, and it's moved from Oregon to California, and it sat on a shelf, and I'm still stuck with this, this big ball of yarn, and, and maybe hundred dollars invested in the yarn that's going to go into this beautiful thing maybe someday if I ever get to finish it. But, but it reminds me of our faith sometimes, of how we can have this beautiful, this be these beautiful elements that, that are, are beautiful in themselves, and we may have even vested, invested a lot of time in it, and yet it gets a little knotted, and we're not exactly sure how to untangle it all. In my 20s when I was in college and I finally started to question some of the faith and the theology I'd grown up with, I read this quote by John Fisher when he says, when faith is all connected up to your childhood identity, your sense of reward and punishment, your standing in society, your own place in the world, it's hard to reach into that switchboard of interconnected relationships and come up with the line that is truly your personal possession, a faith you would hold on to if all the rest were taken away. And even if you did have a hold of it, it would be hard to know for sure and hard to tell it from everything else. Faith can be a big knotted ball of yarn for most of us. So here we have the story of Jacob. He's in the same triad of projection and reality and events and God. J 
Jacob's story um, is, is that he was a twin, the second-born twin. So in his tradition, that meant that he was less favored than his older brother. And so we begin with his immediate projections that he is the youngest twin, that he felt weaker. Earlier in the story, it says that Esau was strong and hairy, and that that's, but, he, but it says it in the text as if that's how Jacob saw Esau. It's possible they were identical twins. It's possible Jacob was even bigger than Esau, and yet he felt like he was less than in some way. Either way, Jacob wanted to be blessed. He wanted to be seen, which in some ways is the meaning of being blessed. To have what wasn't his, to receive that firstborn blessing from his father. And in that mess, Jacob actually did some things. There were some events that happened. Yes, Jacob was caught in a patriarchal system of blessing that was not fair to him. Yes, he had a father and a mother who played favorites. And because of that, he tricked his way into the blessing of a firstborn. He pretended to be his brother, and his father was blind. And so he went into his father's, to his father's deathbed and tried to get a blessing from his father. And this made his brother very angry. His brother, who had said he'd sell him that blessing for a bowl of food, but didn't think he really meant it. And so Jacob ran away and was away for 20 years in which he collected a couple of wives and some children and built quite a bit of wealth. And now Jacob is leaving his father-in-law's home and he's traveling out on his own and he is about to meet his brother for the first time in 20 years. Now imagine the projections and the expectations that are in that moment. <laughs> imagine Jacob's fear over whatever this has become in his mind over these 20 years and this time apart. Jacob is about to meet his brother Esau. And he's so afraid that he splits all of his possessions and all of his family into two different groups and, and splits them up so that if Esau attacks one, at least he'll have the other. And the night before, he sends his wives and his children across the river, and he has this experience, this nightmare, this dream, this encounter. And we're not even sure who it was. Was it God? Was it an angel? Was it another man? Was it some sort of projection? Walter Brueggemann says, at night our defenses are down, though, and we lose the initiative for our existence that we can maintain all day long when our guard is up. So it's in this place, in the middle of the night, you know how when you wake up and everything's all mixed together in your mind? This is what happens to Jacob. And he wrestles with this man, and it's clear that he's longing to be seen, still longing for that blessing, this time from God, I think. And in his grasping, in his wrestling, he sustains an injury. Jacob, whose name means the trickster, who has tricked everyone his whole life. As my husband so wisely pointed out to me last night, now God tricks him. <laughs> God bests him by injuring him. I wonder how many of us have been wounded in the murky waters of our struggle with God. When I began to have serious questions about the version of Christianity that I had grown up with, 
in my early 30s, things got complicated really quickly. We had to leave a church community that we had helped start, the first place that had actually invited me to preach, where our friends and our community and family were. There were phone calls made to people in the church saying I was, quote, questioning the fundamentals of my faith. We lost friends who, the term now is just they ghosted us. They just weren't there anymore. For the next almost seven years, I was in the murky waters of projection, of events that happened, and of this God that I was trying to understand. Now, it's tempting to tell this story, and indeed I have told it for many years, as if I was the victim. But I also think in the midst of it, I was Jacob, demanding a blessing, wanting to be seen. I was Jacob, wanting the story to work out in my favor, wanting to be the one who was right. And in this story, I have my own projections, my own desperation, my own resentments. But no matter what, I sustained wounds, which is always why I say if I wasn't up here in the front, I'd be in the back row. (laughs) of church, because it's a place of wounding for me. Jacob's wound becomes the birth of a new story, the story of Israel, no longer named Jacob the trickster, but now named Israel, the one who contends with God, which for most of us is a more honest name. It's wonderful to know we are loved by God and at peace with God, but I would venture to say that having our name be one who has contends with God is a more accurate description. With all of our projections and all our history, we are those who contend with God. And in that wrestling, in that contending, we break down our projections and come to acceptance of our realities. In that contending, we have the opportunity to move into a more adult faith. Sarah Hurwitz recently wrote an article called Religion for Adults Means Embracing Complexity. She says, but what about those of us who never grow up religiously? I'm not just talking about those who continue to worship a deity of human proportions, one who shares our prejudices and opinions on political issues, rather an infinite and unfathomable divine. I'm talking about people like me, she says, who ditched our childhood phase and disgust considering ourselves too smart for religion. I would argue that we're not part of the solution here, we're part of the problem. Since we are abandoning our traditions to those who would distort them for their own small purposes and absolving ourselves of responsibility for the results. And that's a real loss because mature forms of religion don't traffic in simplistic or implausible answers, but push us to ask the right questions. Not just what does it mean to be happy or successful, but what does it mean to lead a truly ethical life, to be a part of community, to serve something greater than oneself. In short, when it comes to religion, many of us still need to grow up. And that means doing the seeking, learning, and grappling required to make these traditions our own. In the verses immediately following Genesis 32, it says this. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. 
Jacob himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. Jacob looks up and finds forgiveness and welcome in Esau's eyes. He says to Esau, to see your face is to see the face of God. Now this is not a happily ever after ending. Indeed, Esau invites Jacob to come with him, and Jacob says, oh, I'll come along later, and then he goes a different way. And they never reunite as far as we know. Jacob's still left with his wrestling and with his projections and his expectations. And yet there is a moment of healing as well, a progression in his journey of faith. Let me finish with a little bit more of my writing. I no longer see that day in the backyard in 1975 as the day I secured my eternal destination. But I do cheer on that three-and-a-half-year-old for embracing all she could understand about God. I no longer see baptism or communion as a litmus test of orthodoxy and a reserved right for those who have prayed a certain prayer. But I am grateful for the seriousness of my early piety. I now see that that eighth grader was struggling with normal developmental struggles rather than a sinful nature. And I am proud of her for asking for help in the difficult early teen years. I don't think the salvation of the world rested on my missionary efforts. But I love that overachieving young missionary for doing the biggest thing she could do for the most noble cause she knew. I am so glad that God came to me where I was, and I want to find that childlike faith at my core once again. What I want is not a set of beliefs that replace the ones I grew up with. What I want is a different kind of faith altogether. A faith that allows me to be in the world in a posture of embrace. A faith that lives, breathes, discovers, delights in beauty, and weeps in pain. I want a faith that affirms truth wherever I find it. It is not the airtight arguments that I trust. It is a mystery beyond my understanding. It is the struggle in the middle of the night that brings me hope. It is the wound of faith that I walk with that reminds me I have wrestled with God and have still been blessed. Jacob lived with his blessing that became a vulnerability, a lifelong limp. Can we allow our limps, whether they be through religion or our families or the ways our life has unfolded, to be the birth canal for our transformation? Will we let the knotted mess of our faith experiences teach us that we don't need to have a perfect faith, a perfect God, or a perfect self, but that what we need is a wholehearted journey in which we can wrestle with even God? Will we believe that the teasing out of our own experiences and projections will lead us deeper into that mystery? Jacob calls the place where he sustains Penuel, the face of God. May we also discover such deep grace in our woundings.